Warning, this podcast features graphic content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello again, Nightmare Society, and welcome to another episode of True Horror Stories. My sister-in-law has come to help us this week with the twins, so she gets all the babies, and I get to make you another episode. A big thanks to our contributors who make this whole thing possible. User PoopShoes53, user Pumpkin Spice Whatever, and Blue. Please don't forget that Nightmare Society is a weekly podcast, We distribute every Thursday, and it's available pretty much anywhere you can get a podcast. Like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, etc. Uh, So don't forget to follow us or subscribe, and you can get episode notifications. And please also consider heading over to YouTube and following us there as well. Oh, and also our Instagram, at Nightmare Society Radio. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, get comfy and prepare yourself for another episode of The Nightmare Society. This occurred when my son was four years old. I'm 100% sure that my kid prevented something horrible from happening to me. It turned into an episode of Law & Order with a terrifying ending. By way of background, I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which has the honor of being the most racially segregated city in the country. It's a cool city overall but we have a really crappy inner city with a ton of poverty and violence and gang activity. At the time this happened, I was living in a sort of in-between area. Not the ghetto, but not a super nice area either. I was a 22-year-old single mom. I lived in a ground-floor apartment on one of the main streets. I parked in the back alley behind the building. My front door faced the street and I had a side door too with a walk running between my building and the one next door. I got home in the middle of the afternoon on a Saturday with my kid. As we drove down the alley to get to my parking spot, I saw a guy in a hoodie, sort of lurking around by my parking spot. It was weird because it was warm outside and he had his hood up, but there were a bunch of gangster wannabe kids in the neighborhood, so whatever. It was definitely an odd place to just be standing, though. As I got close to the building and started pulling into my parking spot, he turned around and started walking toward the street, past my side door. He definitely left because I arrived. I figured he was smoking a blunt or something. I didn't think anything of it, and I got my son and some bags out of the car. I went the same way the guy had just taken, to my side door, I didn't see him at all. My son and I went inside and I was in the process of putting stuff down when my doorbell rang. 
I wasn't expecting anyone and I immediately thought it was the guy. Being young and naive, I answered the front door. It was the same guy, still with his hood up. He immediately smiled at me, but not in a super friendly way. More of a leer. He looked to be about 16, with a fake gold grill that was studded with little fake diamonds. I regretted opening the door, but here I was, so I went with it. Hi, I said. He kept staring at me and said nothing. At this point, I saw another kid in a hoodie pacing behind him on the sidewalk and looking at us. I was quickly realizing that this was not a good situation. My son, who I had momentarily forgotten about, came up behind me. He did the shy kid thing where he stood behind me and poked his head out from behind my legs to look at the guy. Hoodie dude looked at him for a good couple of seconds and then back at me. Yo, is Danielle around? I don't know who that is. Maybe try the other door. I gestured to my neighbor's door to my left. You sure? Yeah, sorry. And he left, walking in the opposite direction of my neighbor's door. Hoodie dude number two followed him. I thought it was really weird that they didn't even try to check next door for Danielle. I thought the whole thing was really weird, actually. My boyfriend got to my apartment a few minutes later, and I was very glad to see him. He had a really old jeep that he always parked out front on the main street. When he went out to get something from his car shortly after he arrived, it was gone. Car theft was a pretty common thing in this neighborhood, but stealing it from the main street in broad daylight was pretty ballsy. So we called the cops, filed a report, the whole nine. I told the cop about hoodie dudes, since it seemed like it could be important. I was able to give a good description of the guy who came to my door asking for Danielle. I had no idea if it was relevant, but the fact that the jeep was stolen shortly after these guys were around seemed pretty relevant. That's where the story ended. Until two days later. I got a call from a different cop with a downtown main precinct. He told me they had found the jeep and other than the ignition, it was not damaged. Yay. He asked if I could come downtown to do a lineup, see if I could identify the people who had knocked on my door right before the jeep was taken. That was weird. A lineup for a stolen car. But I agreed. He asked if I could come down in a couple of days. Also weird that they didn't want me to do it right away, but I was mostly focused on the fact that doing a lineup was pretty freaking cool. So I go to the downtown precinct a couple of days later. The way this went seemed sort of unorthodox, but it was what it was. Two detectives took me into a dark room where a woman in her 50s was sitting with a young woman in a wheelchair. The young woman's lower leg was in a giant cast with this whole metal contraption surrounding it, with maybe a dozen metal rods going into the cast itself. At this point, I had no idea what the heck was happening. The detectives instructed us that we weren't to say anything during the lineup, except if we wanted the guys to turn around again or whatever, and that we could not talk to each other at all. Okay, so we ended up having to wait in the room for almost an hour, in the dark, awkwardly not speaking. They explained it was taking more time than anticipated to get the 12 guys from the jail over to the precinct. Finally, we got started. 
They did two lineups and gave us forms to mark one, two, three, four, five, or six. There was a large window in front of us, and they explained that the guys could not see us. They turned the lights on in the room behind that window and brought each guy in individually. I could not identify anyone in the first lineup. I sort of felt bad, actually, but I couldn't. The second lineup started, and I didn't recognize guys one, two, or three. Number four came out, though, and I immediately recognized the guy who had knocked on my door. He didn't have his stupid grill in anymore, and it was definitely him. After the second lineup was done, they brought the other two men into the hallway and told me to stay put. After a few minutes, they came back to get me. The detectives asked if I could recognize anyone, and I told them I was sure about number four in the second lineup, but could not identify anyone in the first lineup. I had gathered by this point that hoodie dude number two had likely been in the first lineup, but I had not gotten a good look at him when he was pacing on the sidewalk. They had me sign two forms, one for each lineup, with the second form identifying number four as hoodie dude number one. When I gave the forms back, the detective told me they could tell me what was actually going on now that the lineup was done. Good, because I was really freaking confused by this point. He explained that number four was indeed one of the guys they arrested with my boyfriend's jeep. The guys had stolen the jeep and driven to a nearby part of town, into a quiet and lily-white neighborhood. They came across a young couple unloading groceries from their car. The young woman with the leg contraption was the female half of that couple. They parked the stolen jeep behind them, got out, and immediately shot them both. They shot the woman in the leg and shot the young man in the crotch. He was in the hospital in bad condition, which is why he wasn't there. The older woman was the girl's mom and had brought her in from the hospital to do the lineup. The reason it was delayed a couple of days was because she had emergency surgery to fix the damage in her leg. The guys didn't demand anything from the couple or take anything from them after the shooting. They just immediately shot them. The young woman managed to remember the license plate number of the jeep, and they were apprehended in a corner store when a cop saw the stolen car parked outside shortly after the shooting. The shooters were both teenagers but were being charged as adults. One of them had stupidly talked a bit before lawyering up and had told a detective that it was a gang initiation. They had stolen my boyfriend's car after taking the bus out to the street I lived on. They had figured it would be easier to get away if they had wheels. The detectives were pretty sure I had been the original target of opportunity, but couldn't explain why they hadn't gone through with it. Nerves, maybe. I knew why, though. It was because my kid was peeking out from behind me. They told me I might have to testify if the case went to court and told me I'd hear from the DA's office when they needed me. A couple of months later, one of the detectives called me and told me that hoodie dudes pled out to attempted murder charges in exchange for reduced time. The guy who got shot in the crotch survived. I didn't ask how many years, but I assumed they probably were still in prison 13 years later. As an ironic postscript to the story, my boyfriend had the same jeep stolen from the same spot in front of my apartment about four months later, also in broad daylight. That time, they didn't find it right away. He was staying over at my house weeks later when we got a call around 2 a.m. from the MPD arson unit. 
They torched it and left it in the middle of the street in a notoriously violent area of the city. I moved after that. One summer long ago, I worked for a house painting company made of many small franchises, preying on college students for underpaid and overworked employees. Said indentured servants slash workforce generally returned to school in late August, and the franchise would close until next summer. I was a lackey who hired everyone, formed crews, met with customers, transported materials, etc., aka my boss's job, but he preferred, you know, not doing it. Late in the summer, my boss decided to continue into the fall months so he could make some more money while depriving me further of the will to live. So I had to hire people who were in the painting business, but for whatever reason couldn't find a job with a reputable company, and so had no option but to work with us. Yay. Enter Jim. Jim was a veteran, about 45 years old, which was far above my usual 18 to 20 year old hiring demographic, but he had impressed me over the phone. As I was essentially painting entire houses by myself or with a skeleton crew until I could scrounge up more workers, I didn't interview him in person. I just told him to show up ready to go and meet me and the crew at a new job site at 9am on Monday. Life happens as it does, and I had a family emergency that prohibited me from being there on Monday. Some of my summer workers who didn't go off to school would be there, so I texted them explaining to help Jim get used to the way we worked and make sure to keep it basic. If he was having trouble, send him home and he'd start over with me the next day. 9.45am, my phone was blowing up with texts and calls. I'm at a wake, but I slip outside to hiss into the phone. I'm staring at a dead family member, and you know this now. What? Jim. Jim isn't okay. What do you mean? He's freaking insane. He's ruining the person's roof, and he won't listen to us. He keeps screaming at us to shut the F up. Well, I thought Jim had a point with the last part, since my crew spent more time talking than painting. But I digress. In their infinite wisdom, my crew stuck this new dude up on the roof to paint a teeny space, which would take about five minutes with a brush. Homeboy pulls out a nine-inch roller and goes to town, swooping the thing up and down like a skateboarder on a halfpipe, so the entire black roof area below him is covered in beige paint. I tell them to get him down and send him home. I'll deal with it after the wake. I tell my boss what's going on. He brushes it off saying that Jim had called him to apologize and tell him he could bring his cousin, Oscar, a guy who's apparently worked as a painter in a union, to do the next job. Boss does not consult me, says it's fine and I have to deal with it. Great. New job site, new day. I still hate my life. Oscar is not in a union, but he did work as a painter for over a decade, until he was put in jail for armed robbery a jail stint that he was fresh out of as of a week ago. To Oscar's credit, he was very polite, respectful, and deferent. Yes, bow before me. I had asked to speak to him alone before I let him set foot on my job site, 
and he was completely upfront about his jail time and what led to it, answering any questions I had. I was convinced, and he did an excellent job. My boss stopped by for the first time in forever and was also impressed by Oscar. So impressed that he decided Oscar and Jim would take on a job by themselves, a job that was mostly trim work for a family of mom, pop, and three daughters, 15, 11, and 7. He also decided that he would take care of all the customer interaction with the exception of me dropping off the extra tall ladder halfway through to reach one ridiculously small but very high piece. Sure, fine. Halfway through the job, two days in, I show up like a good peon. Massive ladder in tow. Jim is listening to music and I see Oscar furtively look at him then wave to me to keep driving and park around the corner. I love me some drama. I don't care about anything anymore, so I do. Oscar sprints to my car and tells me that Jim has been making the owners and their daughters very uncomfortable and my boss had been ignoring their calls. Oscar had told them privately to wait until the day I came and he would make sure I talked to them. I thanked Oscar, told him that I would deal with it right then and then requested he hang around and proceed as if everything is fine in case I needed his assistance in any capacity. I pulled into the driveway, nodded at Jim, and knocked on the door. I was pulled in almost immediately by a frantic and hot mother. The family was Russian, so I was treated to a deluge of information that I could mostly understand. But the rest made me think of Red, from Orange is the New Black, that had found out I didn't like her food. Apparently Jim had been very opportunistic about his ladder positions as he worked on the second floor of the house, and they were conveniently always able to see directly into the girls' bedrooms, which he took pictures of on his phone. He also made multiple comments to the girls as they came home from school that were a sizable step over the line of pedophilia, but a freaking football field size past the line of how you speak to customers or their kids, period. Massively inappropriate. Sexual innuendos, the works. I managed to keep myself from melting into the floor and promise them that this will be dealt with immediately. After that, I walk out to confront Jim. I ask if I can use his phone because mine was dead. And after he hands it over, I find almost 100 pictures of the various bedrooms from every angle possible, zoomed in, etc., he sees me open the pictures from his position on the ladder and starts flying down and screaming at me. He launches at me and Oscar puts himself between us, yelling at Jim to calm down. Jim panics and flees for his car, leaving his phone with me. The police were called and I handed the phone over, was interviewed. Poor Oscar almost had a panic attack, but they said they would work with the family and take it from there. Great. I finished the job with Oscar, we get tipped, and the family thanked us for our role in helping them as they didn't really know how to handle what Jim was doing. Time passes and I'm home watching TV in the living room. It's about 9pm. Light floods the room as a car pulls up my neighbor's driveway with its brights on. I don't care. I continue watching TV. A few minutes pass and I hear yelling from the neighbor's house. I look out the window and it's Jim's car in their driveway. 
because my boss had given him my home address as where to pick up the checks at the end of each week. He got very confrontational, yelling at the neighbors where was I, when really all he had to do was turn around to see my idiotic slack-jawed face staring out the window uh, about six feet away. Then he pulled out a handgun and started motioning at the wife. Before I can even register this is actually happening or grab my own gun, which I would have heroically used to shoot myself in the foot or something, my living room is filled with red and blue lights as multiple police cars pull up and consequently arrest Jim. Jim had four guns in the passenger seat of his car, one of which was an AR-15 and another a shotgun. He apparently had only taken one out to wave over his head, leaving the other three in the car because he wasn't 100% sure which house was mine. My neighbors are elderly, nosy, snarky, and call the cops on any and everything of little to no consequence. They called as soon as his beater car pulled up in the driveway, and their knee-jerk 911 reaction likely saved my life. So, Jim, let's not meet again. And also, you suck at painting. I grew up in a big family. I'm a triplet, the only girl out of the other two boys. Me and my brothers are closer than most siblings are. Yes, we fight, and yes, we want to lock each other in the closet, but that's just what siblings do. But the thing that made us closer will forever be burned in my mind. It was a nice, cool summer day in July 2007. We were walking home from the 99-cent store. As 15-year-olds, we always wanted sugar. We had our grocery bags filled to the brim with sweets and drinks. We were walking down our street at the time. We moved after what happened, but I'll get to that later. We were singing My Chemical Romance off the top of our lungs. After we finished the second chorus of Give Em Hell, Kid, a white minivan pulled up next to us and rolled down its window, revealing a man who looked to be about in his late teens, very early 20s, probably 19. He then proceeded to ask, is this 7th Street? My brothers and I thought nothing of it, so we just said, yeah, this is 7th Street. The man said, thank you, rolled his window up. We continued on singing when the oldest triplet, by 14 minutes I might add, pointed out the white van was following us. We walked a little faster. Our house was right around the corner. As we were walking inside, I noticed the man parked and got out of his car. He was wearing all white. White hoodie, pants, shoes, but his hair was jet black. He saw me staring and waved. I felt embarrassed for staring, so I just waved back. He walked into the house next to ours. Then it hit me. He was our new neighbor. I put my stuff in my room and opened my window. My brothers shared a room in the basement. I got a room upstairs. As I opened my window, I could see inside his house. It looked like his room. I saw posters of motorcycle girls all over. Pervert, I thought. 
I was hiding my candy from my little sister when I heard a... Hey there. I look at my window and see him standing there waving at me. Um, hello? I say. We never properly met. I'm Nathan. Said the man Nathan from across the yard. Oh, nice to meet you. I'm Blue. I say, smiling. I was a little happy. I wasn't one for making friends, so this was huge. We talked back and forth for about 15 minutes. Hey, I never got your age. He said, smiling. I didn't really want to tell a stranger my age, but he seemed pretty trustworthy. Boy, was I wrong. Uh, I'm 15. What about you? I ask, wanting to know this mystery man's age. Wow, you look really hot for 15. I'm 19, soon to be 20 in two weeks. I laughed nervously at the comment. I should have stopped there, but... As a 15-year-old girl who never got complimented, I didn't. We said goodbye and I went on with my day. After dinner, I went into my room and read a book. About two chapters in, a tiny rock gets thrown at my window. I open the curtains to see Nathan with another boy. He looked younger. Hey Blue, you busy? I smiled and said no. He introduced me to the boy next to him. Apparently, it was his roommate. We'll call him Jake. We were talking back and forth between our windows when Jake finally piped in saying, Wow, you're right, she is super hot. I just smile and say thank you. They notice my band posters and we start talking about my chemical romance. At about 10, I say goodnight and close my window. I never told my parents or siblings about what I was doing. Us three all talked back and forth like this for weeks. We had a plan every day at 3 p.m. we would talk. One day we were talking and he said, Hey, you want to come over? I was skeptical at first. Then he said, Please, I'm 20 today. It's my birthday. Then he made a sad face. I didn't want to seem rude to my only friend, so I say yes. I quickly wrote him a card and went over. My brother saw me leave and asked, Where are you going? I simply said a friend's house. I discreetly walked over and knocked on his door. It opens about 13 seconds later, revealing a tall, about 6 foot 6 man. I felt so small, only being 5 foot 1. Oh, Blue, you're so small. Come in, come in. He said with welcoming arms. I sat on his couch and gave him his card. I said happy birthday. He opened it and smiled. Thank you, he said. We talked for what seemed like hours until the front door opened. His roommate Jake was home. His eyes darkly lit up when he saw I was there. Hey Blue, what's new? He asked. I told him nothing much. He then looked at Nathan and smiled and Nathan nodded. Blue, could you come upstairs? I need help with this gift. I nodded. I was so blinded by the friendliness I didn't realize how dangerous this was. We went upstairs and he took me to a room, the room across from mine. I could see my room. Before anything could happen, I felt handcuffs around my wrists. I was then chained to a door. As Nathan walked in, he flipped the lights on, revealing photos of me in my backyard, walking down the street, even playing football with my brothers. I wanted to leave. I wanted my brothers, but I was chained up. I started to cry. 
Nathan walked over to me and said, Your looks are worth a pretty penny. I immediately knew what he was talking about. He smiled and said, Don't cry. By the time we're done with you, your hair will be blonde, and you'll be halfway across the country. They were going to sell me. Jake started lathering my hair with something. They left me hanging from handcuffs on the door for what felt like three days. They never came back in. I had a perfect view of my room. One day, while I was just hanging there, I saw my brothers walk into my room. My window was open. I started yelling for them and by some miracle they saw me. Then, not even five seconds later, Jake burst in putting a rag in my mouth. My brother told me that they told our parents and alerted the police. They showed up more than 20 minutes later. I was unhooked, then Nathan and Jake were arrested. The police told me that they were going to sell me to a man in Russia, and they got a life sentence, and that I was actually gone for three weeks. There had been a search party for me. When I walked into my house, I saw my hair white and my body skinny and lanky. I didn't talk to anyone for years. I only talked to my family. I was homeschooled afterwards and we moved. To this day, I use the motto, trust no one, ever. I'm grateful my brothers went into my room because if they hadn't, I would not be here right now. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. And if you're on YouTube, please head on over to our YouTube and uh, follow us there. We'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time. Sweet dreams.